This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a gist newsletter. To sign up for it, our once a week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gist news. It's Wednesday, December 12th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I've been, I've been stewing on the bananas meeting between Chuck and Don and Nancy. And oh yeah, the block of wood playing the role of Mike Pence. And what's remarkable is how unremarkable it was. More on the exact nature of how it was simultaneously a mind-blowing 3D acid trip and a re-airing of an episode of Gilligan's Island where guess what? They didn't get off the island. More on that in a second. But first... I want to concentrate on this one aspect. After the meeting, I saw a few articles claiming that what we saw on display was Trump's sexism. Well, the man is a bore and a sexist, and often being just himself includes sexism. So I, I wouldn't discount a claim of sexism. But uh, here's the Atlantic magazine's Amanda Mull writing the headline, Congresswoman Interrupted President Trump's Interruptions of House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi are part of a long tradition of men talking over female colleagues. I would argue if they're truly colleagues. Then there was the Daily Kos, who had this uh, analysis. Trump, in meeting with Pelosi and Schumer, unwittingly gives America a lesson in sexism. Yes, unwitting. That is a constant with Mr. Trump. But I looked at the tape, and um, yeah, Trump definitely interrupted Pelosi quite a bit. About how we can keep the government open. open. The, 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 We're going to keep it open American, if we have border security. There. Our members are already well, left We have the home. lowest unemployment that we've had in 50 years. Okay. There. In the public view. But it's not bad. Let, let us. No, uh, no. It's but called it, transparency. I, I, I know. It's and it was this one. Saying we confront some of those facts without saying to the public. You know what? We need public, border security. That's what true. we're going to be talking about, border security. But you know what? He also interrupted Schumer a lot. Not threatened to shut down the government. Because you, you want to shut down the government. Because you can't get your way. The last time you shut it down, you yeah, got killed. Let me say something, Mr. President. And Pelosi interrupted Trump many times, too. It totally solves but the I problem. But I don't want to take this. I, I, unfortunately, this has spiraled downward. So I went back. I counted all the interruptions. And I found that, indeed, Trump interrupted Pelosi the most, and then Trump interrupted Schumer, and then Pelosi interrupted Trump. It was a freewheeling conversation. And the rudest moment wasn't an interruption. It was when Trump asserted that Pelosi might be too weak to speak for her caucus. You know, Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now, and I understand that, and I fully understand that. And Pelosi forcefully rebutted that point, but in doing so, she... Guess what? Interrupted. And we're going to see what happens. But we have to have border security. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting. The Daily Coast, though, provided a count of the number of interruptions of Trump interrupting Pelosi. They came up with 16 during a three-minute stretch. I had done my own count. I did not come up with a count that high. They provided a time code. I watched the exact tape. 
I still came up with fewer than 16 interruptions. I guess they included any time he vocalized agreement. He said right. He said correct a few times. You'd have to include those to get up to a count of 16 interruptions. The event turned out to be something of a Rorschach test for the way we in the interruption quantitative community count interruptions. I do not think he was more rude to Pelosi than he usually is to every human and to our country as a whole. But the odd thing is that it wasn't that odd. So getting back to that. See, this meeting should have been the kind of thing that you never forget. That, oh, remember when this happened? Except it happens all the time. It didn't even transcend political news. And here's the testament to just how uninteresting it was. It's actually uninteresting for me to even point out that it was uninteresting. You weren't hooked by my quote-unquote insight, were you? Where I said it was uninteresting, but we've come to expect it. You said, yeah, yeah, we know, heard that one before. So I was thinking of an analogy for this. I mean, sometimes we try to convey that a thing we take for granted is really exceptional. So you might hear a TED Talk and they start off about the genius of antibiotics or you, I know this, you have had the experience of forgetting your cell phone and then you reach for it like a phantom appendage 12 times an hour and you think to yourself, my God, how used to this wondrous piece of technology I've become. It's also kind of controlling me. But here's the analogy I came up with in describing that exceptional yet totally predictable Trump meeting we just saw. So right now I'm sitting on the eighth floor of an office building recording the words that you're hearing. Do you realize that I am in the air? I am hovering 80 some odd feet above the ground. It is a marvel of steel and engineering that keeps me suspended here. And we don't even think about it. We take it for granted. Isn't that crazy? And you might, if you were with me in the room, say, yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't want to insult building materials and architecture, but it really doesn't seem that crazy to me. Hey, you know, there was a duck in Central Park that's not usually in Central Park. Now, that was something. On the show today, we're going to Carolina in the spiel. But first, I interviewed a United Nations official who is in charge essentially of women's issues. Her name is Usa Regnier. Because I wanted to get at a kind of niggling question that I've had at the back of my mind. That's where all the, all the questions niggle. Societally, we're going through upheaval around gender equality. Well, we definitely need to get closer to equality. We're not even at fairness yet. But what about the upheaval? Some of it's good. Some of it's deserved. Some of it's cathartic. Lots of it is unavoidable. But how much of it is useful? What's the way that other societies who have achieved a closer version of parody. What's what's their way? So anyway, I decided to talk to a Swedish woman who lived in Bolivia to get these answers. And so where do we start? Of course, Wyoming. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In 1869, the state of Wyoming 
granted all women above the age of 21 the right to vote. And this early move for suffrage so angered the rest of the United States that the country as a whole threatened to essentially kick out Wyoming if it didn't take the franchise away from women. We'll cut to today, and I pick on Wyoming or select Wyoming for a reason, because this state, this trailblazing state, this state where in 1925, Democrat Nellie Ross became the first elected female governor, this state now has three out of 30 women, sorry, this state now has three out of 30 senators who are women and seven out of 60 members of the House who are women. It is, in fact, the worst state of the United States in terms of representation. The United States just recently passed the 25% threshold in state legislatures. The national legislature, not that much better. But as we expand this look around the world, the United States, which should be a place of promise and a place leading the way, is not doing that well. The countries that are might surprise you, Rwanda and Bolivia, women have parliamentary majorities. But I've been really wondering about this issue. If we are to advance, and if uh, women who are 51% of the world's population are to become something akin to 51% of our legislatures, legislators, what's the best way to get there? Is it by fiat? Is it by quota? Is it by law? Is it by confrontation? Is it by hashtag? A person who is well-situated to comment on all of this is the uh, UN Deputy Director for UN Women, which is the United Nations Entity for Gender Quality and the Empowerment of Women. I think in French it spells UN Women. And her name is Usa Regnier. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So tell me, I know UN Women does a lot of things, but I want to, well, I I guess I do want to talk about a lot of things. What can an international agency do to convince different sovereign nations to get more women into their political systems? Well, thank you. Uh, You and women can actually do a lot of things and, and we do them too. We have country presence in 90 countries in the world where this is one of the issues that we are working with together with political parties, together with women's organizations and together with governments. We also work here in New York with the whole UN system and also with agencies who themselves work, for instance, uh, a lot on elections and and, uh, high quality participation in elections. So two issues that we're working with is uh, women's participation, as you mentioned yourself, that women are on the lists, but also that they can stay in office once they are elected. And the second issue, which is an emerging issue, is uh, so-called political violence against women in politics. We know, unfortunately, that women encounter harassment, uh, violence, they're being ridiculed, there's a lot of resistance many times against women politicians online and in real life. And that is also something that the whole UN system uh, works against. Scandinavia is very progressive. I've even read that it's rare to find an image of a woman on a cleaning product. I don't know. You could tell me if that's true, but it seems to be one example where they really think about you guys really think about the depiction of women. But what what are the major differences that allow a country like that to, you know, just pick uh, the most qualified people and to encourage the most qualified people to run for office? Because it can't be economics because the United States is, you know, per capita doing even better than Sweden. 
in the, the case of Sweden, we had more or have more of a name and shame system. I think we, with a certain level of awareness and demands for gender equality in society, it is simply impossible for a political party not to have be represented both by women and men because you're seen as hopelessly outdated and just you know not on track if you are represented only by men. Right. So it would seem to be that way in half of the United States. Sorry to bring it to the United States. But so for the Democratic Party to act that way, there is a little bit of naming and shaming. But my perception is that for the Republican Party, or at least half of America, there is no shame involved in that. So the bigger question is, is it something that the country is doing? Or is it more just a reflection of the electorate? In The electorate in Sweden would be baffled and put off by a political party that doesn't have a lot of women, whereas the electorate in the United States is apparently not put off by the same thing. Well, uh, to come back to, to, to Sweden as an example, uh, we have nowadays nationalist party, a xenophobic party, which does has uh, a majority of, of male, both voters and, and people standing for that party. Uh, so that is an exception to the Swedish uh, role. But I think it's true to say that if you have a society or a country where a lot of women are part of the workforce, where women earn their own incomes, where fathers take responsibility and spend uh, time with their newborns and infants and children, and where you would have a high level of understanding of gender equality as a quality of life. <laughs> In that country, you would probably much easier take for granted that women should also have or share political power. It's also true when we according to research that in countries where women have formal power both in, uh, in economic spaces and in polit uh, politics other issues are actually topping the agendas. So when women have political power, they do prioritize issues like social policies, healthcare, elderly care, children's rights and also gender equality. I don't think that women politicians are especially responsible for these areas, but it is a fact that societies change when women have power. And normally, these, these values or issues are, are issues that most people actually appreciate a lot. A lot of people would like, want to live in countries where you have good health care, for instance, or where you know that elderly people have uh, good lives. So I want to ask you about the two countries that have majority female legislatures are Bolivia and Rwanda. Rwanda was a country we talked about quotas, and they, they were doing pretty well in the 90s. Then they passed a quota and they jumped to number one on the list. But then there's Bolivia, and I know you have, this might be a coincidence, but you have quite a connection to Bolivia. What do you know about the Bolivian system and why do women do so well in politics there? Yeah, I used to be the head of of you and women in that in that country. I think that the legislation is important. The quotas uh, in in the Bolivian case, they actually also have the only legislation that I know of which specifically targets political violence against women. There's a special law against harassment and violence against women who in politics. 
that law has shown to be pretty difficult to implement, but symbolically it is important and it raises awareness around the fact that there is special violence and, and, and even hatred against women with political power. And I think that has helped in the debate. I think also what has happened there is that politics in that country to a large extent comes from organizations, from uh, NGOs. And on the local level, we tend to talk only about parliaments many times and governments. But I mean, a lot of political decisions are taken on a lo local level. And uh, in that country, lots of women are also present in, on the local level. And they many t these women are many times recruited from farmers' organizations, for instance, from indigenous organizations or from, from the women's movement. And I think a high level of women's participation in any country is often very connected to a healthy civil society movement. Do you see a correlation between mass movements that are against sexual harassment, which the Me Too movement is, other countries have different names for it, a correlation between that and women getting elected to more seats? Or do you think that they're going on at the same time, but maybe the Me Too movement isn't exactly paving the way to get to gender equality in our government? I think it is very related. I think that in most countries there are movements. I mean, women want to be part, obviously, of political decision-making. But I do think uh, in, in most countries, and that has been the case, and you were describing Wyoming before, and women fought for, for, that, for those rights. But uh, I think that the impact of the Me Too movement and versions has been extremely important, and not only in the Western part of the world, but everywhere. And right now, at this time of year, we are actually collecting stories from all over the world of both what women have been experiencing in terms of violence and harassment, also in political settings, but also positive change, like different examples of legislation or regulations as a response to uh, the, test the, the courageous testimonies that women have come forward uh, with uh, around the world. I think it's been enormously important, and it still is. It's still going on. I ask because... While I, of course, support anti-discrimination uh, measures, I wonder what is the formula to get to the place where we have something close to equality in a fair society? And I look at Sweden, and I don't know the history. Was it, was it hard fought, and were there back and forth tearing down of the patriarchy? Were there street protests? Was that the formula to get to the place that, you know, I'd like my country to get to? Or was it something else? Was it a more cooperative uh, legislation-based method? I think in, in the case of Scandinavia, it has been extremely important to understand the fact that there was some kind of, of societal agreement around the, the necessity to engage both women and men in the labor force. So the idea that both women and men should work full-time 
if they can and want, regardless of marital status and regardless of having children or not. Grown-ups are asked to work in the labour force because it's good for society and for themselves to have their own incomes, but also in order to pay taxes because the welfare state depends on people financing for the reforms and the systems. And this was also a need from employers in the 60s and the 70s, and it still is. But I think it started out with a skilled women's movement influencing the trade unions and uh, the political parties and a demand from employers, a need for both women and men to work. I also think that the Scandinavian countries have not had religious fundamentalism and I think that has also been uh, actually an important factor. So this is one thing that I've been thinking about. We're at a moment where things are changing, but it's not a consensus-based change. There's a lot of anger, uh, perhaps righteously so. There's a lot of uh, hatred. And I wonder if you think that while we should never say people shouldn't be angry, is that the best way can change happen if it's fueled by rage and anger as opposed to something, you know, a more rational bullet point plan to reform the laws or the economy? Well, obviously, I I do think that hatred, humiliation, and deep polarization where you cannot identify with the person next to you, that is seldom good for democratic development and implementation of rights. I think that during history, obviously, women have many times been angry, and rightly so. But I also think that history shows that women have been able to work together and sometimes also over party boundaries uh, in order to push for changes. And they've also been very skilled to understand political timing and political advocacy. I think that most examples of big steps when it comes to gender equality uh, would rather emanate from consensus-oriented political uh, traditions and uh, if they are seen as healthy parts of of democracy, which I obviously think they are, (laughs) then of course it is easier. I think that gender equality It's a rights issue, but it is actually also good for economic and political development, democratic development of societies. And when people can work together, then you can normally be forceful together and push the agenda. Still, you will always have different ideas about what is the most important thing, which measures, quotas or no quotas, and so on and so forth. But I think that... You achieve gender equality again if you decide that gender equality is your goal. Usa Regnier runs the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women. UN Women is what the acronym is, depending on your language. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The state of North Carolina is chaotic, but it's also dug in, which is fitting for the Tar Heels. North Carolina Congressman Mark Meadows has turned down the White House chief of staff gig, preferring to stay as representative to North Carolina's 11th congressional district. 
rather than, say, sign on to become the political equivalent of the drummer in Spinal Tap. So that represents stasis. But chaos characterizes Carolina's ninth. There's pure chicanery at play. That is perhaps the nice way to talk about this Carolina cluster flub. I, of course, wouldn't want to offend the pastor, Mark Harris, a fundamentalist preacher whose fundamentals don't include following election rules. So Harris, the Republican nominee and presumed victor on election day, won by 905 votes. His margin of victory has been called into question for a number of reasons. The latest is that voter data was improperly leaked by the Bladen County Elections Board to what Democrats say was the Republicans and the Republicans only. They were privy to the info, which of course could help them on election day. Now, already there were huge questions concerning the absentee ballots. The likeliest explanation for odd anomalies in the counties where ballots were requested but not turned in or turned in in an odd number, the likeliest explanation is in the person of a consultant, L. McRae Dowless Jr. L. McRae Dowless Jr. was hired to collect ballots, and it seems like he may have tossed or changed Democratic ones. L. McRae Dowless Jr. is already a convicted felon, guilty of fraud and perjury. He is also, crazy Carolina here, an elected official there. Must be something in the water there. Literally, he serves on the board of the Bladen County Soil and Water Conservation District. Carolina is strongly considering a new election here, which is quite unusual because the U.S. House of Representatives is very unlikely to seat Harris, and it is their call. Now, there is one benefit to all of these questions, which is that a question can be answered. And that question is, how much is your vote worth? The old way to figure this out is you look at how much is spent on a total campaign and you divide by the number of voters for that seat. So Cruz versus O'Rourke, that was the most expensive campaign this cycle, cost $125 million. A little over 8 million people voted. So that's 15 bucks a vote. In Florida, they spent $118 million in the race. But let's go to Missouri, where uh, the Senate race there worked out to actually $21 per ballot cast. And in Nevada, in Nevada, they spent $40 million. Not even a million people voted. It was about $40 a vote, which is pretty high. We can't exactly say that that's the dollar per vote. That's just the math, because a lot of those votes wouldn't even be swayed, pretty much no matter how many dollars were thrown at them by anything less than a bribe, I guess. There was nothing you could do through advertising or persuasion or get out the vote to get a born-again, still-angry-at-Obama, skateboard-hating oil man in Texas to vote for Beto O'Rourke. But all the votes that L. McRae Dallas Jr. handled were flip votes. They went from Democrat to Republican, and that's gold. Dallas was paid $428,911 by the Harris campaign. Well, he wasn't paid that much. He's still owed about $34,000. But if you take the $429,000 figure and you divide it by the number of votes that the Washington Post estimates that the shenanigans wound up changing, which was around 750, and that's on the conservative side of the estimate, you get a figure of $572 a vote, which tells me something. It tells me that the going rate per voter in that district in North Carolina far outstripped anything we've ever seen in the United States. Or maybe it tells me that Dallas was a little overpaid. Or more likely, what it tells me is that Dallas did a lot more than just go into Bladen County and Robeson County 
and engage in a vote-flipping-slash-harvesting scheme. One final note, bringing it all back through the state of Carolina, back to Washington, D.C. There are a couple other politicians that L. Dallas McRae Jr. did consulting work for. His biggest client was Harris. But next on that list, Representative Mark Meadows, who will not be Trump's chief of staff. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are just talking over each other the whole time until TJ Raphael, just senior producer of Slate Podcasts, weighs in with some questionable stats about Tucson border crossings, even though Tucson's 60 miles from the border. Our newsletter is slate.com slash just news. It is weekly on a Saturday. Every week I'll ask a trivia question. It will only be answered in the newsletter. Very exciting. The gist, you know, if those writers in the Daily Coast and the Atlantic wanted to be really fair, and if sexism is a man talking over a woman, then I guess the award for least sexist person in that tableau was Mike Pence. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.